Let's make our way in our Bibles to 2 Corinthians. We're going to continue our journey through Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth. And as you guys head that direction, what we're going to see today is a continuation. And really, when you when you think about these letters that Paul writes, um, often we don't consider that these letters in the Old Testament, well, or in the New Testament, were were letters. They were writing a continual letter, no different than you would uh, send an email or send a text message. They weren't broken up necessarily in in chapter and verse. In fact, uh, chapters weren't put into the Bible until. Uh, 1200 AD, and verses, in fact, weren't inserted until another 350 years. And so 1550 is when first chapter and verse was placed into Scripture. And I mention all that to say, uh, often we break up thoughts and ideas like it is a, a broken transition from one chapter to the next. But really what Paul is doing is he's sharing an open dialogue with the church there in Corinth. He's sharing a continual thought with them. And so as he's sharing, when we were In chapter 5, last week, Paul uh, got to this point in verse 20. He says, Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were pleading through us. We implore you, on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. And so Paul's charge to the church was, we are called to be ambassadors of Christ. And we looked at the definition of an ambassador last week, that it's literally a person who has a residence in a, a foreign land, and we as Believers in Jesus have a residence in heaven, seated in Christ in heavenly places, and yet we're temporarily, for a short time, positioned here to be, in fact, ambassadors in this land. And so we're called to be in the world and yet not be of the world. And and Paul is encouraging them in their ministry, and their ministry was something very specific. It was a ministry of reconciliation. And we need a ministry of reconciliation because we are broken in this relationship we had with God. That from the very fall in Genesis chapter 3, the relationship through our own sin was broken. And so as a result, we need to be reconciled, uh, relinked. It's what man did with religion. Religion was really man's attempt to relink to God. But what God was looking for was far different than a religion. He was looking for a relationship. And so what Paul's encouraging them to do as we become ambassadors for Christ is to encourage people through our own testimony to say you can be relinked to the God of the universe. The thing you've been missing, it can be had in and through your life as you become an ambassador of Jesus Christ. And as we do this, what Paul concluded with in verse 21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. How is it possible for you and I to become ambassadors of Christ? It's because he who knew no sin was made sin on our behalf. That Jesus taking all the sin that you and I uh, had in our life and taking all the punishment upon himself, he has now given us the opportunity to stand righteous before the true and living God, and we have no righteousness in ourselves. That's why Isaiah tells us that we will be given a robe of righteousness. This is his grace in our life. Because we simply believe in Jesus as the Messiah, he gives us a robe of righteousness, and now we can actually be relinked to God, and we can we can give people this ministry of reconciliation as we go to the highways and byways, and we get an opportunity to share. And so it becomes a great honor for us to get the step into this spot. Paul continues here then in verse 6 by saying, We then as workers together with him. And so if if he's given us this charge to go out and be ambassadors, we get the opportunity to work for him 
It's not just simply that we're working for Him. This is like the old Billy Mays commercial, right? But wait, there's more! There's more here! He hasn't just asked us to go do this blindly or without help. What He promises to do is that we actually get to work with Him. I mean, imagine that. The God of the universe has included us as we get the opportunity to work through this, not by ourselves, but with Him. He gives us His Spirit to be a a co-responder, to actually come alongside, to be the great comforter, to come alongside us when we're in these situations to minister to people. And by the way, we were all called to be ministers. To be a minister just merely means to be a servant. You were all called to serve somebody. And so as we get the chance to serve others, we're not doing it all on our own. He has agreed to partner with us, to come alongside us in that service. And so often then we go, yeah, but I want to hear from God. How can I hear from Him? How can I hear His voice? And I will tell you as someone who has only heard from the Lord audibly a couple times in my life, that the most often way I hear from God is through His Word. It's through His written Word. And so my encouragement to you, if you want to hear from God, is is just this. It's so simple. It's to pray, to read, and to wait. And then repeat the whole thing over again. To pray, to read, and then to wait. And as we wait upon Him, He then draws near to us. James chapter 4, verse 8 says, Draw near to the Lord, and He will draw near to you. And so as we draw near to Him through reading and, and looking through His Word and praying to Him and waiting upon Him, He actually draws near to us. This beautiful promise that's tucked away there in Scripture. So we then as workers together with Him also plead with you not to receive the grace of God in vain, for He says in an acceptable time, I have heard you, and in the day of salvation I have helped you. Behold, now is the accepted time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. What are you waiting on is what Paul says. You've been called into this relationship to be an ambassador. He's given you his his spirit to actually come alongside you. And now you've got an urgent message that the world needs to hear. And it is Jesus can and will save you in the spot that you're in. The message is urgent. And yet so often we wait. And we actually view God's patience as his acceptance of what we have going on in our life. And so many times we view his patience as his slackness. Maybe God's not going to judge. Maybe he's never going to finally make this whole thing right. And yet right before the flood, what God says to Noah there in Genesis chapter 6, verse 3 is, my spirit will not bear with man forever. That there is going to come a time where he is so very patient. This is a part of God's nature, one of his attributes. And yet inside his patience, he is also a good and righteous judge. And so there will come a day where God is going to judge you, me, the world at large. And so as that day approaches, none of us knows the day. Anybody that tells you they do, they're just making things up. But what we do know for a fact is that we're a day closer than we were yesterday. That I know that for sure. God has told us he will judge. And so I'm closer than I was previously. And yet, so many times we put it off. We procrastinate. In fact, I think God didn't reveal to us the day because he knew us bunch of procrastinators. If he told us the day and the hour, we'd wait till right then. And that's what I'm going to start sharing. He knows us and our nature all too well. And yet even for our own lives, we put off the decision most of the time because we're too darn comfortable where we're at. I don't want 
God to take things away. I don't want him to change things about my life, things that I've grown comfortable in or that the enemy has actually allowed me to be a comfort in my life. Most of us are sitting around in padded cells with padded handcuffs and the doors wide open and yet we stay right there because of our own comforts. But you can imagine this, that if you had a a really serious migraine headache, if you've ever gotten just a nasty migraine or you've been susceptible or you're like me and you don't eat on Sundays and you drink copious amounts of coffee and drink no water until about two and then your head hurts so bad you feel like you're going to throw up. Uh, That's my day, typically, on Sundays. And yet I continue to do it. But imagine this. If somebody came to you and said, uh, hey, there's a medicine even better than Excedrin migraine that I can give to you, then it will, it will take the headache away. If someone came to you and said that, that I can prove that this is the, the cure for this thing that is ailing you, and yet your response was, I'll just take it tomorrow. I'll take it next week. I mean, today surely isn't the day. I, I think I need to struggle along in pain a little bit longer. Yet that's the situation we're in. We've got this disease. It's way worse than cancer or any addiction. It's it's S-I-N, and it's killing people all around us. But we put it off, and we delay, perhaps tomorrow, perhaps another day. What Paul is encouraging them is, today's the day. Now's the time to go out and share. Now's the time to encourage people to accept Jesus as their Savior and be changed from the inside out. He continues in verse 3, and he says, We give no offense in anything that our ministry may not be blamed. And so as Paul is sharing with them, he wants to be clear that he is not going to distract or detract from the message whatsoever through his own personal life. And this is important for Paul. In fact, as he was there in Corinth, this was a very wealthy group of people, probably the wealthiest church that Paul had the opportunity to share with anywhere that he would spend any time. And yet he did not take a dime from them. He worked bivocationally as a maker of tents because he knew that money would stumble them. And so even though the law was clear, uh, Leviticus chapter 19, verse 13, I'll go there so I don't uh, misquote it. I know you guys love Leviticus. Just wait, we'll get to Deuteronomy later. He says here, The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. What's God saying through the law? But if you owe someone money because they've done a service for you, pay them! And so here's Paul doing a service as the minister to the church in Corinth. He could ask and say, look, a worker is worth his wages. You guys owe me a salary. And yet he did not do it. He continued building tents because he didn't want to stumble them. This is how very important they were. He he didn't want anything to detract from the message. And yet, as I was writing this, I asked myself, what might I do that keep other people away from hearing him? What things do I have in my life that I refuse to get rid of that might actually detract people or send them away from the message that God wants to communicate? And now this doesn't mean, by the way, that we will never offend anyone. I want to be clear about that. As you share the Word of God, that you will offend people. But it needs to be His Word that's offensive, not you and I. We need to be of no offense. We need to be so very gentle, gentle as as doves when we interact with people. And yet God's Word, because it communicates the truth to some people, Paul said just a couple chapters ago, it's going to smell like the aroma of death. There are going to be those that smells like life, and others are going to be like, that stinks. I don't want to have anything to do with that. And so the Word, though, might be offensive, but we are called to not offend. Now he continues in verse 4, But in all things we commend ourselves as 
ministers of God in much patience, in tribulations, in needs and distresses, in stripes, in imprisonment, in tumults, in labors, in sleeplessness, in fastings. And so Paul says his ministry is one that was marked by a tremendous amount of tribulation. This was an issue that the Corinthians had with Paul's ministry. They looked at what he was going through and like, you're suffering all the time. How can you be called by God and yet you still suffer? And Paul says, yes, we're suffering. And yet note the first thing he mentions about his ministry. He says, in much patience. That his ministry was one that was defined by his patience. And I would encourage you that if God gives you a ministry, then you're going to have to be patient in that thing. Because an impatient ministry is a short ministry. These are, this is not the work of one or two days. In ministry, we are called to actually be patient with people, patient in situations as we share God's word and as he works. And as you consider a couple of the big figures in our Bible, uh, Moses, for example, here was a guy raised up in the house of Pharaoh, 40 years old, and he is a Hebrew by nationality, and yet he was adopted into the house of Pharaoh, number two in command of all of Egypt. Yet as his Hebrew brethren were following two uh, Egyptian soldiers, he, he saw one being beaten. He got so upset, so impatient, he grabbed a hold of the Egyptian soldier and he murdered him. And then he buried him out in the yard. I mean, this guy would fit in Clark County pretty well. So he buries this guy in the yard and thinking nobody's ever going to find out until uh, someone brings it up the next day. And he realizes he had been found out. And what does Moses do? But he runs off into the wilderness. And for 40 years in the wilderness, he spends attending sheep until he's 80 years old. But what was God doing in that meantime? He was growing Moses in patience. He was growing him. Why? Because he was going to need to be a shepherd of an entire nation. Two million people were going to need a patient shepherd because they were a bunch of hard-headed, stiff-necked people that he was going to have to bring back through the desert himself. And so Moses grew while he was in the desert in patience. And the Apostle Paul can can share the same sentiment. You see, when Paul was brought into a relationship with Jesus on the way to Damascus, he was so excited when the scales fell off his eyes, he couldn't wait to share Jesus with people all around him. And he began to preach there in Damascus. But as he's preaching, uh, everybody else remembered, this guy is Saul of Tarsus, who sought to kill us not that long ago. And the Jews hated him because he turned on them. And the Christians, they were leery of him, so much so that uh, Paul's life was threatened there in Damascus when all he wanted to do was preach. So at night, they had to lower Paul down in a basket from the wall of Damascus. And it was from there that he made his way to the desert where he would spend three years with Jesus, growing in much patience. Paul had to grow in patience before he was able to then minister to people just like those here in Corinth that struggled to get the message. And so God used these trials in Paul's life no differently than he's using the trials in your life right now to grow you up in the ministry that he has for you. For each of us, we've got a trial we're going through. We're we're in the middle of something. This is what Paul's trying to communicate. And yet in the middle of it, instead of reflecting on the situation, what God wants us to do is get our eyes on him so we can reflect on him and know that he's growing us in maturity. One of my favorite and least favorite quotes uh, that A.W. Tozer ever said, I put up here on the screen, and it's this. It is doubtful whether God can use a man greatly until he has allowed him to be hurt deeply. And I wish that that wasn't true. And it hasn't been the case in my life. It hasn't been the case in the lives of other great ministers that I have known. 
And so as God is raising you up in a ministry, understand he allows these things in our life because he's looking to grow us, actually mature us. And yet he doesn't leave us in that spot. Verse 6, Paul continues, he says, by purity, by knowledge, by long-suffering, by kindness, by the Holy Spirit, by sincere love, by the word of truth, by the power of God, by the armor of righteousness on the right hand uh, on the, and on the left, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report. You see, as God is growing Paul through these persecutions in the middle of them, he is growing him in maturity. He is also promising not to leave him. He is promising to be right there in the middle of it. He gives us his provision. So as he grows us in persecution, he also gives us by his provision things like the word of truth. You ever think about that? Like when you're in the middle of a battle, the Lord has promised to give us the word of truth. And as Paul was communicating this to the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 14, he says, Stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. This is God's promise to us to defend ourselves from the fiery darts of the enemy. And yet in that, he has only given us one offensive weapon, and that is his word. His word is the sword of truth. And so when you're in the midst of a battle, it's not flesh and blood you're actually battling. It's powers and principalities that are behind all these things that want you to be dead. That's what they desire for you. want you to be separated for eternity. That you have his word as an offensive weapon. And yet so often we don't look to it. We don't spend time in it. That's why I encourage you so deeply to spend time in his word. You are left completely with no offensive weapon if you don't have his word tucked away in your heart. It's the same offensive weapon, by the way, that Jesus used himself in Matthew chapter 4 against Satan. He quoted God's word. He didn't break out the supernatural whooping stick on Satan. He went back to Deuteronomy and quoted it. And Satan had to flee. He could no longer mess with Jesus. And so in the midst of his provision, what happens is then we get to see his power in our lives. He continues here in verse 8. He says, by honor and dishonor, by evil report and good report, as deceivers and yet true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as chastened and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making rich, as having nothing yet possessing all things. In the midst of the persecution, by his provision, as Paul was gaining perspective on what God was actually up to. You see here, he's just given a contrasting ideas because one gives what the world sees. And what the world sees is Paul is being chastened. Paul is dying. Paul is sorrowful. Paul is a deceiver. And what Paul's saying is, no, no, we are true. We are well-known. We are alive. We are not killed. We are always rejoicing. The world doesn't see things correctly. It's looking through the wrong lens. Reality was Paul wasn't unknown. He was very well known. And this was an argument they had of the Apostle Paul because he wasn't a great speaker like some other uh, tremendous orators that came around Corinth in that day. They said, well, who's Paul anyway? He's not well known. He's not even a well-known 
speaker. In fact, later on in the letter, they're going to say, oh, Paul's words are weighty, but his speech is contemptible. In other words, he writes great letters, but he's not a great speaker. So who is Paul? And in fact, if you turn back to Acts chapter 19, we can see very clearly uh, how well Paul was known. In Acts 19, the Apostle Paul is ministering there in Ephesus. And there's a tremendous revival that's happening uh, throughout uh, Ephesus. And as the revival is happening, he's caught the eye of some of these uh, Jewish leaders. And in fact, a group of uh, seven sons of Sceva, they're known as, they are trying to perform an exorcism. There's a demon-possessed man, but they watch Paul do this, and so they try to emulate it. And in verse uh, 13, they're speaking to this demon-possessed man. They say, we exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. So they're trying to just be copycats. We're going to exercise you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches. And then in verse 15, uh, the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? Now this is one of those things that reads in black and white, pretty vanilla. But when you think about somebody that's possessed by a demon, and you get like that exorcist head roll, like, yeah, Jesus I know, Paul I know, but who are you? This is the point where I wet my pants, if I'm one of these guys, right? So these guys, this demon-possessed guy is like, who are you? And he proceeds the demon-possessed man to jump upon these seven sons of Sceva and the chief priest and literally beat the tar fire out of them, beat the pants right off of them. We're told they run away naked. I mean, I've seen some beatings in my day, but that's the kind of beating I've not seen before. So they get a beat down, but I, I bring all that up to say, did you catch what the evil spirit said? Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? They viewed Paul and they say, Paul, you're unknown. But the powers of darkness, those same powers that want to hold us down, they, they knew exactly who Paul was. They tremored because he had Jesus in him. And so it, it's not as the world seems to think is what I'm trying to communicate. Perception isn't reality. They had the same kind of perception about Jesus. He's an itinerant preacher, a craftsman from Nazareth of all places. What good thing can come from Nazareth? This would be like somebody telling you the Messiah came from Martinsville. You're like, what? Martinsville? Like, what good thing could come out of there? And yet, in this spot, Jesus was the Messiah they were waiting on all along. They didn't have eyes to see. They didn't have ears to hear. And so when they looked at Paul, they saw somebody that was beaten and poor and held down. And the reality that Paul's trying to communicate is, you have viewed us as having nothing, yet we possess all things. You view us as sorrowful, yet we're always rejoicing. In fact, Paul's life was defined by his sorrow for others. If they saw Paul crying, he was crying by the situation others were enduring, not about his own situation. As I read that, I don't know about you, I'm convicted. Because often I'm crying out to the Lord about my own situation. I'm taking my own plight to him and shaking my fist, my God. And I, I'm not praying and crying out nearly as much for other people as what Paul was. And so this is the way that he would communicate. I'm always rejoicing for myself. He continues in verse 11, and he says, O Corinthians, we have spoken openly to you. Our heart is wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted by your own affections. The relationship between Paul and this church that he spent a year and a half of his life with, it had gotten awkward. And so Paul's saying, look, this isn't awkward because of me. I love you guys. I'm communicating these words uh, with an open heart. 
And yet what he is saying here in verse 12 is you are restricted by your own affections. Your own emotions are actually tricking you. And this is the case so often with us. Our emotions, they wreak havoc on us, especially in the midst of our relationships. We're up and down and all around. And yet Paul said, look, the truth is I love you. I don't feel any differently about you. And he encourages them here in verse 13. Now in turn for the same, I speak as to children, you also be open. You want to counteract the awkwardness. What Paul's saying is just be open. I've been open with you. You be open with me. And let's openly address the issues. So many times these things go left unsaid. The awkward exists because we're not willing to just acknowledge what's going on and go, let's open the window and clear the room out of here. Let's talk about what's happening. And so Paul wants to encourage them. Be open. Be honest. Communicate this. But do it in love. Don't do it uh, and be brutal about it. Right? So uh, love without truth is hypocrisy, but truth without love is brutality. So we don't want to be brutal and we don't want to be hypocrites. We want to communicate truth in love. Now, verse 14, Paul continues by saying, do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. And so his encouragement to the church here in Corinth is, when it comes to your relationships, both uh, personal relationships, romantic relationships, business relationships, don't be unequally yoked. Don't yoke yourself to people who do not believe. Speaking of uh, yokes, Matthew chapter 11 is what this brings to mind. Jesus here speaking in verse 28. He says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus' encouragement when it comes to being yoked to someone, and, and understand that a yoke is not a Y-O-L-K, but a Y-O-K-E. It was a, a beam of wood that they would use and place across the back of an animal. It would be used to tie two oxen together and create a, a team. A modern day tractor is what they would essentially create. And so what Jesus is saying here is that you need to take first my yoke. You need to be yoked to me. You need to be tied and connected to me. And his promise in that is that his yoke is easy. And the phrase easy means well-fitting. That when they would tie a team of oxen together, they would want to make sure that it fit across both of their shoulders, both of their backs. Because otherwise it causes pain or injury or just general discomfort. The best way I know, and pardon me for my analogies, is um, in your drawer at home, you guys have all got that pair of underwear. You know, the ones you save that are down at the bottom of the stack. You keep them in there because you're not sure you're going to get the laundry done. But you get down to that one pair, and then all day you're just like, doing the thing like that. Where you, why? Because they don't fit, right? It's not easy. It's like, oh. And Angela's so proud of me. But but we have those. We don't get rid of them because we're afraid the laundry ain't going to get done. And yet, you don't want to wear them because why they don't fit good. That's going to be uncomfortable. This is what Jesus is saying. I don't want to fit like that. I want it to be an easy fit. I want it to be comfortable. My, This is the yoke that you take when you take me. And so his desire for us in our relationships and in our partnerships is that we don't get rubbed raw. That's ultimately what he's getting at. And so as he desires this in our life, he's going to then give reasons, Paul is, why Jesus doesn't want us to be unequally yoked and instead to be yoked to him. But first reason, as we continue here in verse 14, he says, 
Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers, for what fellowship has righteousness with lawlessness? And what communion has light with darkness? And what accord has Christ with Bilal, or that is another word for Satan? Or what part has a believer with an unbeliever? And so the first reason he gives of why we are not to be unequally yoked is that he does not want us to be yoked to someone who has a different nature. And so we have different natures. The reality is um, things won't work the way they're supposed to. If you go back to the Old Testament, I promise you we'd be in Deuteronomy. I don't want to let you down. Uh, This is what Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10 says. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Thank you, Lord. You ever wonder why things like that are in Scripture? But the, the reality is, spiritually, this has an implication for us. God is saying, don't go out to plow with animals that are of totally different natures. Because even if you start off and things are going well to begin with, at some point in time, the donkey is going to act like a donkey. From time to time, I get the honor of uh, being able to do both premarital counseling and uh, marital counseling. And what I'm amazed with is that as I do the premarital counseling and you've got the fiancés there and they're talking about their upcoming wedding, and I'll ask things like, so what do you what do you love about him? And I get the answer, everything. Well, really, what, what bothers you about him or her? Nothing. We love everything. And I think, oh, just you wait. Because a few years later, when the, when the kids are involved, and when the years have passed, I'll get the opportunity to do the same kind of counseling. What do you love about him or her? Nothing. What 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 attracts you to them? Nothing. What bothers you about them? Everything. And for these same reasons, as God's desire is for us to be equally yoked in a relationship, at some point in time, uh, you're going to pull different. At some point in time, the donkey is going to act like a donkey. And thankfully, I'm reading out of the New King James and not the Old. Otherwise, you guys might have an even better understanding of what I'm saying. Don't be surprised when they act like that, right? And God's desire for us is to be equally yoked to one another, to be in a relationship where you actually pull together. You pull at a similar rate with one another. And so it's it's His desire for us to have the same nature. Now, as we continue, verse 16 And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk among them. I will be their God and they shall be my people. And so the second reason for us to be equally yoked in relationships is because um, we always have an effect on the people around us. Who we yoke ourselves to and what we yoke ourselves to, it always has an effect on others. You can imagine in this building structure if we had just one rotten truss up in the roof. And before long, a big snow comes along here in a few months and the entire roof collapses. But it was only one rotten truss. You guys are still going to be upset because you all are dead. You're going to be upset with me because I didn't take care of the one truss that was rotten. And so it goes in our lives as well. That what we do and what we get ourselves involved in and who we involve ourselves with, it always has an effect on others. To go to the Old Testament again in Joshua chapter 7. In this spot, Joshua has taken the children of Israel over to the promised land. And as they've 
made their way now. Uh, they've had their first tremendous victory. The walls of Jericho have come tumbling down. And they surrounded Jericho and they blew the trumpets. And this double-walled city, it collapsed. And God's command to them as they went into the city and they ransacked it is just as simple. Don't take anything for yourselves. Don't worry about provision. I'm going to provide for you later. You're going to take other spoils from other cities, but don't take anything from Jericho. Leave it all. And so they left the city of Jericho and they went on to the next battle. And it was this small town of Ai. And Ai was such a small city, it didn't even have walls around it. And so as they went that direction, Joshua's like, look, this is going to be an easy game. I'm going to send 3,000 men. I'm not even going to take the whole army. You guys just go uh, mop up, and then we'll, we'll show up in a few days. And then he got word back that they got a good old-fashioned hiney whooping in the city of Ai. And in fact, whereas Jericho, no lives were lost for Israel, 36 men died that day. Now Joshua tears his clothes. He's like, Lord, what's going on? How could this possibly happen to us? We're your chosen people. And God says, Josh, there's sin in the camp. You did not obey my command. And so they went on a search throughout all the uh, children of Israel. Who is the one? Where is the spot where there's sin in the camp? And it wasn't multiple people. It was one guy, a guy named Achan. He saw a few things that caught his eye there in Jericho, and he took a little something for himself. Nobody would ever have to know. Nobody would ever be the wiser. Who's going to get hurt by this is the idea. And as a result of one man's sin, 36 people lost their life that day. And you see, the same is true with sin in our lives. That we get this mindset that it doesn't affect anybody else. It's only affecting me, but our sin always has an effect on we are called to be the temple of God. Romans chapter 14 verse 7 says that no one lives to themselves and no one dies to themselves. We all have an effect on the people around us. Most of the time, it's those closest to us that we see the biggest effect. And so we're called by God to be his temple. And he wants to give us a reminder that we will have an effect on those all around. And so we continue the third reason. Therefore, he says in verse 17, Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. And so the third reason is because God said so. The third reason is it's in God's command that we should be separate. In fact, Isaiah chapter 52, verse 11 says this, Depart, depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing. Go out from the midst of her. Be clean, you who bear the vessels of the Lord. We just read where Paul said, we are the vessels, the earthen vessels that have the Spirit of God in us. And so his call to us is to be clean, to be set apart. And so he sends us out, but he calls us to be sanctified and set apart for his use. Now, this might lead to the question, uh, what then do we do with association of sinners? Are we to not associate with any sinner whatsoever? Well, if that's the case, uh, none of us are probably going to be hanging out together. In fact, even in the case of Jesus, Luke chapter 7, verse 34, we see that he was referred to as a friend of sinners. So what do we take from this? How do we proceed? Well, notice as Jesus was called a friend of sinners, that he actually had the impact on their lives. He had a dynamic, visible impact as he interacted and spent time together with sinners. And so my question to myself and to you is, do you have an impact 
to sinners around you? Or are they impacting you? Because if it's the case where the environment that you put yourself in, the place you take yourself and you go, and you've told yourself this story that I'm having this great impact, look at this great ministry, and I would ask you, what's the proof? Have you seen any changed lives? Do you see anything visible taking place by the environment you've put yourself in the midst of? If you have not, if you're seeing more of an impact on you, then I would tell you in the words of one of the great actors of our day, Arnold Schwarzenegger, get out! Get out of the way! Right? Get out of that situation. Get out of that relationship. Get into one that is healthy because you become like the people you associate yourself with. And so if you're not having an impact on them, they are most certainly having an impact on you. If you go back to the Old Testament in Second Chronicles, we have the story of a guy named Jehoshaphat. He is one of uh, only five good kings in the entire history of the nation of Judah. At the point that we arrive in this story, uh, Israel and Judah are now two separate nations. Uh, Israel's gone to the north with ten tribes. They split off from Judah and their two tribes to the south. And in the history of the nation of Israel, they had zero good kings. Out of 20, they were 0 for 20. Terrible uh, track record. But in the south, with Judah, they had five out of 20. So at least they're getting close to the Mendoza line. So they're, they're batting a, a decent batting average, but still not great. But Jehoshaphat was one of those good guys. He actually was a righteous man. He led his family well. He, he led the nation in a revival. And so as he led, his name even meant uh, Yahweh has judged. And so we see that uh, Jehoshaphat was a good guy. And yet when you arrive in Second Chronicles chapter 20, verse 35, after this, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, allied himself with Ahaziah, the king of Israel, who acted very wickedly. And he allied himself to him to make ships to go to Tarshish. And they made ships in Ezion, Geber, wherever that is. But Eleazar, the son of Dodava of Merashah, prophesied against Jehoshaphat, saying, Because you have allied yourself with Ahaziah, the Lord has destroyed your works. Then the ships were wrecked, and so they were not able to go to Tarshish. Jehoshaphat, maybe this is where the phrase jump in Jehoshaphat, the, the bad quality he had is he jumped in relationships that God didn't want him to jump into. As he allied himself with the king of the north, and they made a great business plan. Hey, let's go to Tarshish. Let's get goods and services. Let's bring back horses and gold. Let's do this together. We'll ally ourselves. God made it very clear that you're not to be an ally with him. He doesn't have the same nature issue. And as a result, his ships were all sunk. This is what I would communicate to you, that as you yoke yourself in business or in a relationship with people that don't have a similar nature to you, it will always end up with a ship sinking. It might not financially, it might actually work out for you, but I guarantee you spiritually, your ship will go down. And God wants better for you than that. So he gives us this as a command. Now, Lastly, as we wrap up this morning, God says, I will be a father to you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, says the Lord Almighty. And so the final reason for us to not be unequally yoked with non-believers is this, because it's the desire of my father. That's what my dad wants for me. And so as my dad desires this for me, there's always a price when I don't listen to my father. Now, that may cause some of you to wonder, well, am I going to stop being a son or a daughter if I don't 
listen to God in this spot if I enter into this relationship? And I would tell you, most certainly not. In fact, what Paul would write to the Romans in Romans chapter 8, verse 38 is this, uh, For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I think that's pretty clear. He is not going to be separated from us, no way, no how. But what does happen when we enter into these relationships is it does limit the degree in which He can bless me. It does limit what God can actually do in my life. He has got such great plans for us, and yet as we yoke ourselves unequally, His effect He can have in our life is actually limited. I'll give you a quick example to explain. Um, a few weeks ago, actually on Labor Day, we decided to do some labor. Uh, we hadn't stained our deck for a year, and so uh, because it was my great idea, actually it wasn't, I was forced into it, uh, we all went out as a family to stain the deck. And as we got out there all together to stain the deck, we, we worked away, and, and there's a picture of uh, Madeline and I actually putting the last coat on up on the screen. I mean, we stained the wood, we stained our clothes, we stained our shoes, we stained our face, we stained everything. We stained it all. And so as a reward, as dad, as the father, I said, hey, family, let's get cleaned up. We're going to Dairy Queen, right? Because dad loves himself some Dairy Queen too. Everybody loves Dairy Queen. And so my command to them, my word to them was, get cleaned up. I'm taking you to Dairy Queen. Now, can you imagine what the response would be if they said, yeah, I don't really feel like it. I don't really feel like getting cleaned up. I mean, why bother to wash? The result is I, I couldn't then take them to Dairy Queen. But they needed to get the stains removed so that I could take them and bless them in the way that I wanted to. And so too it is with God. He desires to bless us. He desires as a father to do good things in our life. But because of the things and the relationships we yoke ourselves to and our refusal to get them cleaned up, to, to wash your hands and get it cleaned up, he is limited in the way that He can bless us. And so as we consider this, please understand that His desire is for us to yoke ourselves to Him first. And we can do that because He first yoked Himself to death. Think about the beam that He carried across His back. He yoked Himself to death itself so that you and I wouldn't have to. So you and I wouldn't have to experience that. And as a result, we have this beautiful freedom to be able to live in Him, and yet His desire is to bless us so richly, so deeply for all of eternity, and we got to clean it up the way. And so, Father, we thank You, and we praise You for the heart of the Apostle Paul. Thank You, Lord, for Your Word. It speaks to us truly and deeply in a very real way in the spot that we're in. Lord, give us courage when it comes to cleaning up the the messy spots that we don't want to deal with, Lord. There's often things I'd rather just keep shoved off to the side and never have to talk about or worry with or fool with. Lord, give us the courage to deal with those things, but know that you, by your provision, are going to be right there alongside us doing it. Lord, I thank you for your heart. I thank you for your desire to bless us so deeply. Thank you for the heart of the Father. Lord, would you please just pour your spirit out? 
in Jesus' name.